Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Wines of Bordeaux. Visit their website at Bordeaux.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Here. Welcome back. Food Talk. We're live again. Great show today. I've got in the house. How fun is this? Patrick Capiello, who is one of my favorite psalms. He is, I don't know how to describe the guy, because he's not like 30, but he's got the energy of like a 25-year-old. And he's kind of this like, like, like leader of a mob of younger psalms who, who are just taken over the scene. And he's had a great career. Kid grew up in, well, you grew up in upstate New York, ended up working in restaurants, came to New York to work at Tribeca Grill back in the day yep. when it had one of the really rock solid wine lists going on. Um, we were there for a couple of years and then Gilt, Veritas, just baller joints were suddenly, you know, like if it's not a premier crew, grand crew day, it's like, what the fuck are you doing here, <laughs> boys and girls? And then that the great, you know, you and Brandon McGill, great success with Pearl and Ash and Rebel. I love those two restaurants. We filmed at both of them. Um, the reviews have been great. So, and I want to give a shout out too, just a quick sideline. Where next week we'll be filming uh, Missy Robbins. I got my first. Have you been to Lilia yet? I have. Yeah, yeah. I was there um, twice. So once in the first month. Yeah, good. Really awesome. I've known yeah. Missy since she came back to New York because she was kind of an outlier. She was sort of replacing AC at Avoche, which was some kind of big shoes to step into, and AC was kind of like that was his stepping out party from Danielle, and it got three stars, and it was him. And then this Missy, who this kid from Chicago, what? And I remember like. I guess it was Bullfrog. You know, it was, I think it was Bullfrog was the publicist kept bugging me to come in. I must have had like an off day. And I said, yeah, all right, whatever. <laughs> I'll, I'll try the place. And her food was just amazing. And yeah. then I met her, and she's just like a complete badass. Yep. And then she ran the restaurant at Avoche Time Warner and Avoche Downtown. Ne- I, 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 she I used to live near me on Bleecker Street. I never saw her. She was in the restaurant six days, seven days a week. <laughs> they replaced her with two fucking guys, and they still couldn't do it. Yeah. And now she has her own place in Williamsburg that's so cool. I love that space. Yeah, and the food's great, and she's in peak form. And I got also for the first time. I don't know if you've been to Patty Jackson's place, Delaware and Hudson. Not yet, but okay. It's on my, she's cool. It's on my list. So she's another she's like another New York vet female chef. That's Patty's been in New York forever mm. and cooked everywhere and can do it all. And both of them sort of established their names in Manhattan and moved out to Brooklyn, of course, yeah. Williamsburg, no <laughs> less, where all the cool kids hang. And um, she's doing this really personal menu. It's great. There's not a lot of. I mean, a criticism as a customer would be you don't have a lot of options. You sit down. Here's what you're going to get for starters. There's like eight or nine small plates. Everyone gets the same thing. Everyone gets the same next course, which is a pasta. And there's a choice of two mains. And that's it. That's the menu. Yeah, I know. It's like, damn, girl, if you can pull this shit yeah, off, it's, go. It's a, that's every chef's dream. That is right every there. chef's dream. I'm cooking. You're eating this shit. You yeah. don't like it. Hey, Fuck yeah. you. Go to Mesa <laughs> Premier. <laughs> They're right around the corner. They got oysters for a dollar. Oh, that's over now, too. Um, 
Anyway, so how was business rebel Pearl Nash? Summer was tough. I know everyone I talked to. Oh, summer yeah. in New York was a thousand degrees, unrelentlessly hot. For sure. Yeah. No, we we, we definitely had a slowdown in the middle the middle of the summer, but um, things have come back. But yeah, I think it was rough for everybody. You know, it's one of those funny things when it comes to you know everybody always loves to talk about when when the restaurants jamming. Yeah. But when it's slow, no one wants to have the conversation. But I was very, I, you know, I, I was interested to know if other people were having the same uh, issues that we were having this summer. So I, I was openly talking to everybody about it. And I'm not going to name names, but right. I was, I would say that nine times out of 10, when I had conversations yep. with other restaurateurs and other chefs, they said that this was the worst summer that they've ever experienced. And it's, it's a lot of reasons. And I mean, it used to be historically, when you go back to the Mike Calameco era, which was right after dinosaurs died, that time of New York's <laughs> restaurant scene, summer was always slow back then. Yeah. I mean, back then it was it was winter was dead yep. so january february just laid off people start hiring again march april uh, april may june picked up june was wedding season you were flat up and then whoa the end of june it was just like start laying shit off again yeah cut food costs yeah you know we had to it was kind of a different business then and then and then even i like summers were always dead then because we didn't have the european tourists and people just went away it was just like that's the way it was and then september you're always chomping at the bit because new york's a big jewish town and there's a lot of main jewish holidays that take yeah it. so september we just re- got through all of them and yeah. september really wasn't <laughs> you were kind of waiting like ours yeah. was like, oh my god we're gonna die yeah if we don't start doing business we're gonna die september's coming and then you get september you're like okay and then it's like no october man so that was what it used to be like the third you made all your money in the fourth quarter october november december yep banked it and then you hopefully had a good spring and that way used, to, used yeah. to be like that and i think you still think that way i mean and then if you do have a low summer like you know when when you first open the first summer is always great and you know that was the case for rebels for summer pearl ashes for, you summer, guys got for, a for sure michelin star yeah, no, like it's, three minutes we're, we're, this, we're very it was like the first <laughs> diner the first night or something how's yeah. that happen that well was it was like that illegal. summer they were they were they were they were all doing the reviews so you know we opened in yeah. may and uh, then they just came that summer, but yeah, but for sure, I mean, we know we, we we're trying to we're trying to pay it forward. I mean, we're doing a lot of new new fun things at both Pearl and Ash and Rebel. We just um, released a new brunch menu, and we're doing fifty percent off all all our bottles of wine. I saw. So bucks. here's the deal. Here's the deal. They got a new brunch menu at Rebel, and they they Instagram and Facebook pictures. And I I don't eat breakfast or lunch much because I'm just like a weirdo. That's been my mo since I work out. So I like having an empty stomach when I work out. So I just kind of wait for dinner, which is the worst thing in the world to do. And then I start drinking and eating until I pass out, which yeah. is like do not do this at home but it's but i'm a chef and that's how i've always done it um but yeah pictures look insane food looks incredible yeah it's great it's, and, it's and great. then you have this thing is it at both places or just pearl and ash with the, these baller bottles yeah you're discounting at, after per, at pearl and ash we're doing it late night um at rebel we do it at the beginning of service kim uh precaution who's a sommelier at, at rebel announces it via her instagram feed and basically we're just doing really rare and unique bottles of wine old bottles of wine super sought after yeah. bottles of wine and we're doing them at cost by the glass just one bottle letting it rip and um at pearl and ash it starts at 10 p.m so we're just trying to you know pearl and ash when it first opened was a huge industry late night spot. i always it, it was psalm heaven yeah man. i remember like peeking my head in the door and i just watched people's instagram feels like everybody was Crazy. there at one o'clock in the morning yeah. and you were sabering champagne standing for up on sure. the bar it was like this freaking bacchanalia every night was, and then a hang for new york mystic for sure yeah and i mean you know over the course of time like you know when we were kind of the the first the first show in the on the street back then in the bowery nobody was yeah. down there now it's like you got so many other places companies there 10 bells obviously was there before us but pasquale jones so many places to go to so the competition level has gotten huge so i think people have started to branch out to other areas on the late night seed so we want to win those people back industry people and, and regular people you don't even need to be in the industry to get the discounts so there's yeah there's you would, fun stuff it's i remember when mike madrigal used to post those big bottle forms yeah they were like regular that's why i never did it, have them by the window it, yeah. and it would be some totally. i don't know how we would catch some like ironic person 
walking yeah. past them. It was like tongue-in-cheek, hysterically funny shit. But same idea. He would have these big format bottles he would open, sell them for basically cost plus nothing. Next. Yep. So, so if you're a wine, you're like, oh, I can go to the Upper West Side tonight and go to Barbalude. He's got these magnums of XYZ that he's pouring. This is great. Totally. And that's the idea. The idea is to try and, first of all, obviously get people excited about coming in late night, which we were really excited for. We have later, later hours now, 2 a.m. on the weekends and midnight during the week. But we not only want people to come in, we, I want to give people an opportunity to, it's almost like I look at it like a, like a small wine school. Like there's bottles of wine here that, that, that you're not going to be able to drink normally <laughs> that you can't even find, but you can come here and have a glass of it for like under 20 bucks or under 10 bucks, whatever, whatever, depending on what the wine is and learn more about wine. So it's, and we constantly are changing the region, you know, the, 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 the varietal, whatever it is, we're mixing it up. So and you've done fun. that with your SOM program too, because I have met like, people that used to work for you that in the first year or two they're now on the floor at other places you've been like super generous with the come work for pearl and ash if you're if you're stoked and you show the motivation i'll start letting you do some stuff in the wine program with me and it's almost like people can work at pearl and ash under your wing for a year or two and like get a job on the floor is kind of like a psalm yeah you know if they do some studying and do that stuff and they're kind of like graduates of cap you yeah i mean it's you know it was the way i learned under david gordon at tribeca grill yeah. for working there forever so i wanted to extend that same experience because I think, I mean, a lot of times I've, I've interviewed a lot of people who have wine history and wine background, and oftentimes it just kind of makes people jaded when they think they, they already know everything or they know that the way they want to do it. It's hard to make somebody embrace your philosophy or your, you know, mm-hmm. kind of culture mm-hmm. where when you find people who are waiters right. who are just totally green, right. who are just Malleable. so excited and want to be there, you can kind of really move them in a way. And the way that I handle wine service is different than a lot of people. I don't, I don't want it to be so... Um, you know, uptight, and I, I like it to be fun. You, guests are already nervous enough when they're around wine, but if the person that's serving them to them is not like friendly or approachable, then it makes it even more awkward. And that's the thing that I've always kind of wanted to break that mold. So that's what we try to do. So we have Kim and and Bryn and John, who you know are, are the head toms at all the restaurants, and they're great and super they're proud of great. Caitlin and Melissa. You know, Melissa who was yep. in was in, in Bordeaux, was in Bordeaux so, yeah. with us, and now Aaron Healy looks. He's at John George. Yeah, John, how cool yeah. is that? Good yeah, for Aaron's her. another example. She worked under Matt Conway at Forgione, and and the same. Sort Sort of thing that knew knew a little bit about wine, but was was just somebody who was ready to learn. And twenty five studied, 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 taste, 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 and yeah. now holy mackerel! Like yeah, she's. I, the only thing I hate is having you guys having Psalms as like your Instagram, Facebook friends, like. Like someone who was <laughs> Victoria James. I don't know if you know her. She's a PR. Yeah, I do, yeah. She was at like a per se tasting of some fucking white burgundy shit. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna fucking microwave a hot dog and drop an ice cube and some yellowtail. Fuck you! And you and you're at Keen's drinking Cornos by the, you know, with that big ass thing. I'm like, really? And then all these psalms are like posted like Pascaline now every day that Rouge is open. Sure. The nighttime shot. I'm like, oh well, you know, Pascaline I'll forgive anything for, but yeah, having yeah. some friends looks like a circle because you we just get constantly like, there's no way. Like I just kind of post lots of bottles which just humble comments, not tasting notes because it's like a jerk off thing. Here's what right. I did tonight. I really loved it. it. Was this and that? And I'm yeah. like, don't even do that anymore because yeah. your shit's so ghetto, dude. <laughs> really, like a thirty thirty dollar bottle of, of Chenin Long Instagram, from Chambers? <laughs> what do you? So what, like, dude? <laughs> You know, it's funny though. When I first, I joined Instagram long before, I mean, it was it was it was like uh, an app that a, my, I, my I was dating somebody who was a, a graphic designer, and all her friends who were artists and designers were on right, it, and they're the ones right. that told me to do it. And I th- back then there was nobody, nobody on right. wine that, that was doing it. So I, I, everybody I followed was just posting like cool pictures of sunsets or like you know cool <laughs> projects they were working on. Now it's like my whole feed is my like my girlfriend looks over my shoulder and sees me looking at Instagram. She's like, oh my god, dude, that looks so painful. Why everybody well, even the dude, follows the kid you were 
were with when on that Bordeaux trip we had a year or two ago. One of those two psalms from the West Coast was just Anthony. Yeah, Anthony was yeah. just because you guys kept going to to whatever that for the Fasson, La Flacon, whatever the fuck yeah. it was, every night and just like drinking this rare and obscure. And, and he, yeah. I, I know it, like they were talking like the next day, like his Facebook was just like I mean Instagram was just like blown up because yeah. he already had like ten million followers. Yeah, and now they were he's a good dude. sitting there in France just going like what the fuck, <laughs> dude. Anyway, anyway, so we're gonna talk about Bordeaux. And, Two minutes. Great. Because that's why we're here. We're here to drink some Bordeaux. And you know I'm keeping one of those. You know, yeah. you know when they come you can, into this you can keep them. studio. You can don't. keep them. No, it's okay. But you're not going to need that box to get them out of here. I don't think I can take them. We will <laughs> recycle that box. Um, but I've got a question. So I, have, I actually wrote myself a note. So it's funny. Where are my notes? I actually use those. I never use them. So the other night I'm home. And I actually drink a lot of Bordeaux. I do. Because I'm an old guy. So I grew up drinking, like, you know, so I'm a generation or two older than you. So if you were a chef in New York in the 70s and 80s or anywhere in America in a, in a good restaurant, you were drinking nothing. All the wine lists were Burgundy, Bordeaux, and Champagne. Right. With maybe a little spattering of Italy. And when I was at the Four Seasons, way long ago, you know, they were into California early as pioneers doing barrel tastings. But we were just, we grew up drinking first growths, and they were affordable back then. I mean. Amazing, right? Yeah. Amazing. Like, yeah. I, had, I had a menu from La Cote Boss that I had on Facebook or Instagram a week ago. It was Dinner was $9, right? I mean, hello, like dinner, a three-course dinner is $9. So you can picture you were drinking First Growth Bordeaux for like $15 a bottle in a restaurant, which was amazing. I I grew up with that. So I still have a place in my heart for for that balance, for that architecture, for for Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, those blends, and and when they're done well. So I'm sitting at home the other night, and I'm having something to eat, and I thought I have like a a, a 60-bottle refrigerator thing, a Viking thing. And I pull out a bottle of 2000, a Chateau that's not great, Chateau Lanesson. I go Google, I don't even know who it is. I'm guaranteed it cost me $15. But 2000 is a pretty damn good year. Saint Julien, I know the property is right near Gros de la Rose. Mm-hmm. And I'm drinking it and I'm just, I'm loving it. I'm loving this wine. And I'm thinking, in a way, it's running contrary to another part of my life now, which is Nat Wines. Because this is a 240-hectare property. Mm-hmm. It's machine harvest. Mm-hmm. They're using optical sorting inside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, hello, like you want to check boxes, they're going to make Pascaline and Alice firing shoot you. <laughs> I think I've just hit three of them. <laughs> and they're probably, you know, it's probably farming with fertilizer and pesticides, and I bet the ground looks like the moon. Um, but the wine was great. Yeah. So I'm drinking this wine, I'm saying, like, how, you know, I shouldn't love this, but I do. And then I'm reading Asimov's piece yesterday, um, which is like wines under 20. And those are always hard to do, cause, but they're, it's kind of nice because, let's face it, most of us, myself included, if you buy wine for yourself at home, you're probably in the 18 to $30 range because otherwise it gets really expensive. I drink wine every night. Sure. I mean, it's, my wife knew what I spent a year on wine because it comes out of my corporate shit. She would fucking kill me. <laughs> she would just fu- she would kill me, and she deservedly so, but, you know, what the hell? Why leave it to the kids? <laughs> so Asimov has this thing, and I just scroll all the way down to the bottom. Uh, the last wine that he had was a, was a Malbec bio surprise, Jenny and Francois. I'm like, really? And what was it called? Chateau Paybone Home. It was a Cote de Bly, Cote de Bordeaux, mm-hmm. right? And I, I read it. I said, I know that label because when I'm stuck in Jersey in the summer, I'm stuck. Like there's two months, three months when I don't come up here and I just go through all my good wine early. And down there, you can't, down there, you listen, it's Jersey, man. It's yeah. South Jersey. Yeah, yeah. Totally. So I go to like a store called Joe Canal, which is <laughs> like, like the Walmart of wine stores. Yeah. It's acres, it's, 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 it's footprint is an acre. It sells more shit than you can imagine. Like you have to go in there with a magnifying glass and start spin. But if you know wine. Sure. So you can spin bottles around and say, oh, it's Polaner. Okay. It's their entry level yeah. shit. I'm fine. So they have this wine down there. And I'm like, I drink this. It's, it's a Cote de Blay 
Bordeaux. I drink it all the time. It's like fifteen dollars a bottle. Sure. And I'm just I love the wine. Yeah. So. Where are you on the whole? Because I know you're not like. I mean, Alice has been walking down that path forever. Like you, this is not a discussion I'm having with Alice Firing. No, the answer. It would be, and you Pascaline would lose that discussion. We'd lose that discussion. <laughs> and I met Isabel Legerol. In fact, she asked me to do a panel in that that natural wine event coming up. Oh, the raw, the That's raw thing. Yeah. So I'm going to be there on Monday oh, nice. with with Katori. Awesome. Yeah, which will be kind of fun. I don't want to go an hour with a guy that's an old hippie that's making wine. Yeah. I'm like, oh, what are we going to talk about? We just smoke joints listen to Grateful Dead? Maybe bring a guitar or something? Yeah. Maybe I'll have you ask some questions. <laughs> but so where are you on that, Matt, on, on, on the whole spectrum of wine making? Because it's becoming kind of a political, there's like a dynamic of you're either on one side or you're on the other. What's the middle ground on this? Well, I mean, you know, it's the wine list that I, that I, that I, have created have a good balance i would say of the two of those things and i think there's a lot i mean this is a very like layered question i mean my position is on yeah, it no, is, that I, is i like great wine period um, yeah and i think there are there are definitely wines that i've had that have blown me away that are not made with natural um you know methods or, or people that are using fertilizers you know there are very famous producers um you know producers that people spend a ton of money on you know the the wines from well, Francois Ravineau in, in Chablis, he's not working with biodynamics. Uh, Jean-Francois Coche, some of the most expensive wines made in the world. Um, these are guys that, that do use, and I mean, they're not like carpet bombing their vineyards. Right, it's not the they're, 70s. But, 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 they're, but they're, you know, they, they, you know one winemaker that's, that, I, that I spoke to, I can't remember who it was, I think said it best, and, you know, he said, he said if, I, if my kid is sick, like to the point where it, my, kid, my child could die, I'm going to take my child to the hospital and get it medicine. Yeah. And if you have a vineyard that is your child that produces the wine that your family mm-hmm. sells, if it needs a treatment of something, you're going to give it to it, or you should give it to it. And again, there are other people that say, well, when you, when you, when you do that to, just like people who don't get, take it. Correct. So the, of, the, the opposite side of that is the guys on Alsace who tell me, that, you know, the just my air and Umbrecht, yeah. that because they're bio, because they're natural, even to the point where they're, when like the fertilizer, the, the, the compost that they're using is not like bullshit compost fully urine it's selected right. it's not like cow manure uh, that the strength of the vines themselves right. create resistant vines which i think it's true too and I, and I think you know it's just it's one of those things where you know unless these guys that are working with chemicals now take a chance and you know you see producers like i think a, a really great example is uh, jean baptiste from rotor uh, in champagne he had you know it's a huge production and to make that kind of amount of wine they're probably are not going to be able to work with all organic because organic is expensive it's yeah. very labor intensive and it's hard to create that m- massive amount of wine but he does work with some of the vineyards biodynamics and he's super passionate about biodynamic and he's trying to prove to the, the company that owns this the, the you know rotor that that, that it's feasible and he can do it and somebody like charles smith in washington you know farms a huge vineyard planted the riesling all organically so there are plenty of examples of how it can work for me personally the majority of the wines that i consume are wines that are made with or at least organic practices but it's not because i seek out those wines it just seems to be that as much wine as i taste and within the realm of whether it's not there were other wines that i keep getting excited about going back to so that's a step that that says something and to go back to the the you know comment or, or the, the the thought of how this applies to Bordeaux because it's one of the reasons why we're here 
We're going to bring it back there. We're, gonna, we're there. We're there. I've been talking. There, I just mentioned, the, you there, know. There are a lot of pretty serious. And, you know, that, that's the whole thing about the new movement in Bordeaux. There's a lot of things that, that, are, that, are, that are talking points. First of all, about young generation of people that are, that are going in there with a different mindset. And Would you say a lot that, of this is happening more on the right bank than the left? For sure. Like the Omedoc we're not talking for about, sure, really. But, but, but Latour is a biodynamically farmed vineyard. And nobody ever talks about that because they don't bang a drum about it. They, it's, it just is the fact. And they have been for a very, very long time. And that's, an, that's one of the you know, most expensive yep. and most glorified wines in all of Bordeaux. And it's pretty damn good. It's one of my favorite first growths. Not that I get to drink uh, a lot of first growths, but, yeah. but so that's an example, but yeah, for sure. Biodynamics is in organics or something that's a little easier for young people who are being able to afford less expensive property in the right bank, smaller hectares of, of vines planted. They can take a little more of a risk. And, you know, like the producer you were talking about, we're, we're going to actually have another um, producer that's imported by Jenny and Francois that's uh, all organic production in Bordeaux. So you're seeing it more and more happen. Um, but it's it's a slow burn. I mean, Bordeaux is an area that gets a lot of rain. And you talk to any winemaker there, they will tell you that. And, you know, that does affect the ability to keep rot away. And, and you know, so it just, it's, it's, it's I think, a cart before the horse kind of thing. I think as, as more more young winemakers start to experiment with it and prove that, that it can be done. Hopefully some of the bigger producers will take a chance on it and then that region will, will, will start to excel more. But at this point, a high percentage of producers are, are in Bordeaux are working with organics. And, and you, like you said, I think looking at the back of the label is one way to do it. Um, if you know that you, there's importers that you're excited yeah. about, like Louis Dresner, Jenny and Francois. Kermit Lynch, Jenny and Francois, yeah, the, the, Suarez, the, Rosenthal, You know blah, that those blah, blah, guys are going are gonna to yeah. be working with wines that are like that. And, yeah. you know, I mean, more and more information becomes available about wineries. And I, I mean, I think it's... Good to support people who are taking a chance at trying to work with natural wines, but I think in the end you should you should drink wines that you think taste great, that excite you, and you can afford. And and a lot of times those wines are wines that aren't always made with with natural methods. And I'm I'm not a militant about it. The two I just mentioned, I mean, yeah, it's true. So yeah. it's it's I'm, I, me, nor am I. Although I'm I'm kind of it's my tastes are changing. So what do we have? We have three bottles here. We do. We yeah. do. Talk so, about number one that you want to pour. It's your so, your call. So the, the I'm gonna pour I'm gonna pour the the white Bordeaux first. So this is an example of kind of a um, an attitude about making wine in an area that's maybe not as regal. Um, it's just a it's just a Bordeaux Appalachian white wine. Um, the wine is called Sirius, um, and it's a family that. Why'd they give it that name? I, you know, I think it's. I think it has something to do with astrology, based on the fact that there's a there's a star on the label. Okay, Sirius <laughs> spelled the way the radio station. Exactly. Is. Yeah. Um, so the idea here is to create wine in a, in, a, in a in a more humble appellation where they would tend to harvest the they would they would massively produce the the wine they would they would ferment it all in stainless steel they would bottle it super early and, get, and just kind of send it on its way but this is a producer that wants to treat the wine from this area like they do in like grove or in in um Pesach, exactly right. where where they're making wines using um oak aging it's mainly semillon um not new oak here we mainly used, but used there's oak, oak here for sure yeah there may be a small percentage of new oak but they're investing money into that expense, which is oak barrels, to create a white wine that's still affordable, but made in a humble appellation to prove that you can make regal wines, white wines that have the ability to age that from, from an area where it wasn't traditionally the case. So this is just a Bordeaux appellation. Um, it's primarily Semillon. Um, and so talk about that, because the Bordeaux, the Bordeaux Blanc blends are usually Semillon, Semillon Blanc. It depends. Like in areas like Entremer where it's a little cooler, you see wines that are more heavily based on Sauvignon, Sauvignon. Blanc. And that's the, kind of the cool thing about white Bordeaux is it can range anywhere from light, crisp, and refreshing like Sancerre right. all the way to rich and full, more like what you would get in a Burgundian-style wine. So, so to my mind, you can correct me, feel free to, the Sauvignon Blanc is giving it this Christmas, the floral notes, the tropical floral, the tropical fruit notes, yep. the, occasionally that cat pissy note. Um, 
And the semillon is giving it weight and oiliness. You're 100 percent right. Richness okay. and power comes from the semillon. Acid and freshness comes from the Sauvignon Blanc. So it's kind of a, an area where you know a lot. Most white wine regions in in France are are um, stuck with one varietal. You know, in Sancerre I spoke about that's Sauvignon Blanc. In in, in uh, Burgundy it's it's uh, Chardonnay. So it, Bordeaux is one of the few areas where white wines can be blended. So it really gives the winemakers a benefit. That's kind of a longest finish too. Yeah. Surprising, right? Really amazing. I mean, when so I tell you the price, you'll be it, about, it's like? thirteen dollars a bottle. That's crazy. Yeah. Right? Pretty I don't, great value. That's, thir- I mean, I don't know. Every time I buy bottles like this, this is, I'm like, how the hell do they make any money? I mean, the, the cork costs a buck. The label costs something. The bottle costs something. Shipping it costs something. There's tax, and then there's the importers making money. Right. How does anybody make money on Well, this most stuff? of that stuff is percentages. So when it, come, when it comes to, you know, lower-end wines, everybody's making a little less. So nobody's put, throwing on huge money. Also, you know, the, the products that they're using here, they're going to they're gonna try and Reduce the amount of expense they have to put on things like, you know, the fanciest cork or the fanciest yeah. label. It's a pretty simple packaging. You know what I mean? It's not like, you know, there's not even, there, if you notice, one thing that's interesting about this is the word chateau is actually not anywhere on the label, which is rare, rare. Most Bordelais are pretty hesitant about doing that. But more and more, we're seeing young generations who are who are understanding that people want something that's more about um, a wine that's drinkable and lose a little bit of that pretense and tr- kind of make it more more approachable. Super great. I and mean, you had... I had a restaurant, great wine by the glass for your glass of wine program. Totally. $10, $11, pays for it with a bottle. Yep. Delicious. Would work really well with seafood. Right. Straight across the board with seafood. 100%. I mean, yeah. you know, these are what I call weekend wine, or weekday wines. You know, like when, when, you, when you think about wine, if you like to drink wine every night, it's hard. You can't afford to drink, you know, $30, $40 bottles of wine every night. I mean, unless you're, unless you're wealthy unless you're and then you're angry. <laughs> great for them. But if you're just an every, everyday ordinary person, I think you have to have to find wines that are like house wines. And I have a lot in my in my arsenal. This is one that I that I definitely like to drink at home, and I think it's a great way to it's a great aperitif, which is the the, the best thing. You chug a bottle of this while you're roasting the chicken, and then uh, Patrick move on with some red. I drank. <laughs> but he's I, have been go, I have to go work service. He's tonight. been at it all. Day. I, have to, I, have to, I have to go work service this evening. So this is um this is the red wine. So this is actually funny. You mentioned first of all Jenny and Francois. Which so we should mention. So for for non wine nerds, when you bore down to a certain label, Jenny and Francois, we know since day one have been nothing but natural wines since the beginning. That's like their claim, one of their claims to fame. They work with, they, they try to work only exclusively with winemakers that use um, organic vineyard practices at the least, if not biodynamics. Right. And they tend to like producers who work with less to no sulfur. Um, there aren't, they, again, Jenny's not super militant about that. I think, you know, somebody like Zev Rovine is going to be somebody who's, who's definitely not going to want to work with people who use any sort of, um, anything but biodynamic and he like prefers no sulfur wines, which can make it problematic for sure, but he's got some of my <laughs> Which is a whole other discussion, yeah. the whole so two things like 100%. crazy. Yeah. But Jenny, I think, you know, they've been at it a long time. I think if you look, it's funny to see like the realm of what natural wines have become. And if you look at the way, even the, mm. even when the wines Jenny and Francois were bringing in 10 years ago and Dresner, same thing, those producers have really gotten, you know, better and better at what they're doing. And, and, and that's kind of the learning I curve. I think is when important. I first started, I think my first, I, I'll, I can remember my first couple visits to Ten Bells. They've been there a while. So it was Broom Street, south of Delancey, Lower East Side. Yep. Um, but I re- let me put it this way. So Jenny and Francois, yeah. But I remember, I'll just use that, whatever. I remember Sev pouring me wines and me just not really knowing what to say. Yeah. Because I thought they sucked. I just was like, are you kidding? Well, that was probably the Fifi era. I would know. I said, said, no, maybe Fifi first then, maybe. Yeah, said, but it, I just remember going there like an anonymous sorry, guy and, and like looking at the chalkboard and saying that. Yeah. And then, you know, there was 
breaths that never went away, yeah. and the nose was just well, was, mousy and funky. And there was it was some of them were like the whites would be vinegary and cidery, yeah. and the reds I don't know what the just these cloudy messes of you know goat's ass. What am yeah. I? Dr- I didn't. I, this isn't pleasurable. Yeah. And I'm wondering. I think they've just gotten better at it. Yes, that's one thing. And, and, I, and I, I think I think more and more producers that were already working with these practices and had better technique are starting to be imported. But also, oh yeah, like I'll, like Hervé Suo is a perfect example. Who Jenny Francois brings in from the Northern Rhone. That that wine used to be in Darden Rebo, which is one that that um, uh, Louis Dresser brings in, also Northern Rhone. Those wines used to be fizzy and weird and all fucking crazy. When ten years ago, now I, I drink those wines now, and compared to some of the other stuff that's here, I'm like these things are like pristine. But I think that yeah. those have evolved. Yeah. So this producer is um, it's a, funny that you mentioned it. it's almost the exact same thing as Jenny Francois, and it's all Melbac. Uh, Chateau Tarpe is the producer. So Melbac's also known as Cot. Is that the same thing in France? Co. Yeah. Co. Mainly you see that 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 um, um, strain of it in the Loire Valley. And so you but don't in, think of Malbec and Bordeaux, but it's one. It's the fourth varietal yeah. after Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and Cab Franc that's allowed. And then and, Malbec you see, and then there's also Petit Verdot, but you yep. see that less and less, less and, and less. a few other grapes. But this is probably the fourth most planted varietal, and obviously Argentina helped to make it pretty famous, and it's great for Bordeaux in the fact that it's planted there, and that, that they can connect with people who are looking for good value. This is runs about 25 bucks retail, um, so it's, it's you know more of a weekend wine for me, um, something you want to have maybe with Sunday night dinner, but it's I think truly spectacular and it's bloody delicious yeah and the nose has those dark fruits to it really you know clean clean right there's a good balance of fruit and earth there and I think the wine has great structure I think it's it's a wine that you for sure can age but it's but it's also a wine that drinks really well when it's young and I think that that's the that's kind of the benefit of wines like this you never know you know, often, 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 when they're made in a style like this, I think that there's question whether the wines can age. But this is like 2012 vintage, so I know one that's pretty, pretty. But it's pretty funny. So Argentinian young. Malbec, I like almost never drink it because I could be wrong. I don't drink. You want a housewife from New Jersey? <laughs> it's just that America. I have this aversion to American oak almost everywhere I yeah. go. It kills me in Spain. Except maybe, well, really? Oh, you're not a fan of the. It's just hard Rioja? for me. I just. I think the older I've gotten, my palate it just it just turned. It's made a yeah. turn away. It from... It adds a lot of like dill, and it can be a little aggressive. Super vanilla. It's, yeah, it's, it's very. It's way different. It's way different. I mean, the, the subtleties of, of French oak. You know that great baking spice. There's definitely it's there, and you know, I, I think it's it's like Americans. It's American, <laughs> American wood can be pretty in your face. <laughs> it's a good way to. Th- it's kind of yes. It, there's some Amer- there's a, uh, some DNA that's crossed over for sure into the wood. The yeah, yeah, right. No, this is delicious. This is super fun. It's, yeah. It's it's really great. And, and all, like I said, all, all organically farmed, um, and they use very minimal sulfur, just a, just a little bit of bottling, not much in the winemaking. I could almost, would I be wrong? This would be great decanted in half an hour later. Yeah, totally. A, a wine that I think actually would not only benefit from decanting, but this is a wine you could hang on to for five, ten years, and it would only get better. Yeah. But really, it's, I think it's it's a cool thing looking at, at um, producers trying to make more approachable wines, too. Understanding that Melbeck is something that has a brand and has, has recognition, and they have that varietal in, in Bordeaux. Why wouldn't they embrace that as opposed to trying to, trying to you know, straight away from it. What's the last one? So the last oh, one, going into a little Barsac? sweet wine. Yeah, totally. And this is so like, new so, so this is a, an, another young guy. Thank you, sir. Yep. Can you reach that? Yep. So this is an example of um, a new generation coming into an old old um, house. So this is like a, you know a chateau that was started in the 1800s, and in 2000 um, the latest generation has taken over. And he's a young kid who's sticking with tradition for sure, but I think he's excited about you know helping to put Sauternes a little bit more on, on the map. Um, 
Congrill is the is the producer, Chateau Congrill from Sauterne. And um, this wine comes from 2010 vintage. It's primarily Semillon, like 90% Semillon and 10% Sauvignon Blanc. And here you see, you know, wines that in, in Sauterne, you know, Botrytis, which is this thing that, that affects only certain special areas in the world where it is a, it's a basically a, a fungus that latches onto the outside of the grape and pokes the skin and sucks the water out and just leaves like pure grape nectar behind. And the yield is not, so in order to harvest these vineyards, it's not uncommon for six, seven, eight, nine passes. Yeah. Um, has to be all hand harvested. And then even the clusters on reception are usually looked at. Um, really unique to the region, to the fact that it's foggy and encourages that mold. There's not a totally. lot of wind. It's that jaunt. It's that sp- I mean, once you've been there a few times, you sort of get it. It's and a magical place. It's a magical yeah. place. Yeah. And yet the American consumption, I don't know globally, the American consumption of these kinds of wines, of these what normally we used to call back in the day these sweeter dessert wines, mm-hmm. although you find they actually pair well because of the acidity. They actually pair well with a lot more food than you think. For sure. It's sort of fallen off. And yet as soon as you pour this, you put it to your nose and it's like this you unmistakable, know, this this honey, acacia, yeah. just you know where you are with There's a little wine. bit of mushrooms in there from the botrytis, which is really awesome. I love that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Sauterne for me has always been something that's been in my mm. career because every restaurant I've ever worked at is poured a Sauterne by the glass. And Sauterne restaurants will pour, will actually consume a lot of a lot of Sauterne because this is the kind of thing you want to have a glass of. You don't necessarily want to drink a bottle of it. And it's funny that this is actually a, a 750 we're drinking, but this wine comes in a half bottle, which is a 375, and it's 19 bucks. So it's something you can have in your, in your fridge. And if you wanted to have, you know, after dinner, yeah. if you wanted to have a little something sweet with, with dessert, bowl of ice cream in this, for me, vanilla ice cream in this would be like an awesome, awesome pairing. <laughs> so I think, I think that it's something that is approachable to have at home, but rare, very rare. But in, if you were to look at the numbers of restaurants, most restaurants serve a Sauternes by the glass, and a producer like this makes it affordable, and you can actually do it. It's not like Ychem that has an astronomical price tag associated with it. And the wine's awesome, and it's a, the, the kind of wine that's really, I think, great to finish a meal with. I mean, we have a... a, a, a dessert program that's a little more savory in its approach. So a wine like this is actually perfect with it. Because when you put sweet upon sweet upon I sweet, right, it I almost say becomes that. too much. I like this with, if I'm going to have, if I'm going to have this, I love this with blue cheese. Yeah. I love this with goat cheese. Mm-hmm. I love this with sometimes even pastas with cheese, which sounds strange. But even though it has this residual sugar that can be hundreds of grams per but liter. But it doesn't feel, right? It doesn't, doesn't feel, feel like sappy this, sweet. Right, doesn't feel, and, I, and I think, again, going back in my memory, going back to the 70s and 80s when I used to drink Dequem's, the which is the big boy from yeah. back and then they were really syrupy. I mean they yeah. had they were like glue they were like woof. Yeah. it was like cough syrup. I was like what the fuck? Yeah. They've they've changed. They've made a much leaner style. Try to tighten it up more tight sure. to the bones, more acid. Um, but yeah, the, I think these wines are just so underrated and they work with more than people think they work with. And yeah, so to your point, yeah, not with a sweet dessert, but with a fruit dessert, with an apple dessert, totally. with a yeah. pear dessert, with something where you're going to have. That same acidity in the fruit. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's for me, always the pairing that I wind up going with. And I think, you know, like, really, it's kind of cool to see, like, old school restaurant mentality coming back, right? Like the steakhouse for the millennial, all this sort of stuff that's coming back. Like, all this stuff, roast chicken, Coprico, all, all this kind of stuff that was kind of figured not looked at as being the way to eat. Like, everything had to be made with fucking tweezers. Yep. Yep. Now, people are interested in more rustic kind of food. And for me, like, foie gras... Pat, like foie gras pate, like that, and and sauterne, it's magical. It's a yeah. reason why it's a, it's it's the most traditional wine pairing in the world because it's, it's a it's a bank ama- shot. It's amazing. Yeah, 
So I think that, you know, as foie gras becomes something that people are drink, eating more, thank God, um, <laughs> I think it's exciting to see Sauternes be able to have, you know, a, a companion coming back into the scene. So, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 Sautern is definitely one of the most uncharted areas in, in, in a region that has had some difficulties resonating with um, previous generations. I think young generation are totally open to Bordeaux. You saw when we were with these young Psalms there, they're excited about it because they don't have a frame of reference. Where our generations looked at Bordeaux as being this really kind of like snooty, 2D thing that was, you know, oh, for are. like, yeah. Have you been to Bordeaux? I mean, it's signed up. Well, it's I changing. Mean, you think of, yeah. I know when you think of the classic left bank jerk off trust fund. <laughs> 20th generation kid with his Gucci loafers, no socks, his ascot slightly ruffled, yeah. telling you that he's a vigneron. You're like, just shut the fuck up. It, really? Seriously? When was the last time you stepped in your fucking vineyard? Those are, those are all Portuguese guys. Man. I, what do you think? <laughs> oh I'm not from, I was like, biffy enough. It's like if they, if they grew grapes in Greenwich, Connecticut, it would be like Bordeaux. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, similar. it's like the Greenwich, Connecticut of the wine wow. world. But they're changing. But they are. 100% they're changing. The city yeah. of Bordeaux is cool now. It's so cool. The winemaking's it's cool. It's safe. It's, it's clean. It's it wasn't safe. always that case. It's clean. Yeah. It's lovely. We yeah. had a a complete blast there. Yeah, it's a and fun the wines, city. and I think right to the point, and I think Asimov kind of dissed a little bit. I was like, dude, there's really great value out of Bordeaux because they've been doing this forever. I mean, they've got some of the greatest. I mean, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, yeah. these grapes that we love. That's what they play with. They've been playing on those soils forever since the Roman times. But they know how to make great wine. Yeah. It's true. I mean, it's, it's, and I think Thanks it shows. Thanks for coming in, man. Always yeah. a pleasure. Patrick Capiello, you can find him. Oh, follow him on Instagram and, and eat your goddamn heart out. That's all I got to tell you. How do you follow you at Instagram? What is at Patrick Capiello? Patrick Wine. Oh, Simple. that's right. I should Keep know that because I follow him. Patrick at Wine. Patrick Wine, which yeah. pretty much sums it up. Yeah. All right, we're done. Patrick, thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. Raise a glass to Bordeaux. Cheers, yes. Good to see you again. Yeah, and I was, yeah, my camera, and I could not go to Flack Hall one night with this guy. I had to like my. Hang out and drink large glasses of Armagnac and smoke cigars yeah, with my sixty-year-old cameraman. To make sure he got to bed and got up in the morning. He over, you know, the day we left, he overslept. Is that true? Oh yeah, he's Joe's amazing. God bless you. Joe. God bless you. Yeah, don't ask. And the other kids took our van. Oh, who's fucked up? All right, see you later. Thank you so much. We got a, a quick spot here for the people who make the show possible. We're going to be back. I've got a great book. We're going to talk about. Where's that book? Anyway, right there. Um, there it is in front of me. God damn, it's called Generation Chef. Karen Stabenner is the author. It's so good. I can't wait to get her in here. Stay tuned for that in just a minute. Thank you, Chris. Thanks. Well, she's her own. She's her own female. She's her own female. That's why I like her. I like her a lot. Hey folks, Mike Kalameko here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-80s, when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, the Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting 
marketing and funders? Why don't I go after products that I, I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with? I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable source olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here, so there's Colavita's living in Rome, Colavita's living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I recommend you try it as well. So when you think of the great wine regions of the world historically, I mean, you're, you're going to be led back to Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, okay, maybe Piedmont, Italy too. And as a chef growing up, boy, if you were working in great restaurants in the 70s and 80s, they were mostly all French, and we grew up drinking Bordeaux and Burgundy and Champagne with impunity. Well, fast forward to today, and I just, just got back from the 2015 Bordeaux Harvest. We were there for a week with a bunch of sommeliers. It was so much fun, and I'll tell you, this isn't your grandfather's Bordeaux. There's a whole new generation of young vignerons working with this great terroir that they've lived on, this soil that they know that they've grown up with, and the great varietals that we all know and love, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec. You know, this, this style of Bordeaux now that's younger, that's fresher, that's meant to be consumed now and not cellared, because honestly, which of us has a cellar? And who wants to buy a bottle of wine and wait 10 years? So... The Bordeaux whites are amazing, uh, you know, Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, like, hello, two grapes that we know. The reds tell all sorts of different stories from the left bank style that are a little more Cabernet Sauvignon driven, a little more structured right bank, a little more Merlot, a little easier, um, a little more upfront friendly. But if you haven't thought about drinking Bordeaux wine, give it another shot. For 15 to $35 in that price range, which is my price range, there's tremendous value in there. So... If you're walking past a Bordeaux wine, stop, grab a great bottle. These are some of the most food-friendly wines on planet Earth. Hey, folks, we're back. Mike Calameco here. My guest is Karen Stabiner. Correct pronunciation? Correct. Thank you. And um, she just put a book out. Well, she, it's not like she, does. she teaches journalism at Columbia. You ever heard of Columbia J School? I think I've heard of that. It's supposed to be good. It's in New York. Rumor so. has it. Yeah, rumor has it. Anyway, um, she has this book out called Generation Chef. And just the title attracted me because I'm of the generation where when I was in high school, which would have been the 19, early 1970s, like if you said to your guidance counselor during career day, you wanted to become a chef, they would look at you as if you had gone off of your meds or perhaps you'd been hit in the head hard by something. It was not a career. It was blue collar. There was no glamour. I'm not even sure the word chef existed in the American lexicon. It just was, I'm a cook at a restaurant or I'm the head cook at this place. You know, it wasn't like France. It wasn't like Europe. How that has changed in the last 20 some years has astonished me. But Somehow, Karen did something that I'm surprised no one did before, but then again, I'm not. What she did was somehow got access to a really hot young chef um, who was about to open a restaurant called Huertas. Am I pronouncing that right? You are. Um, and, they, I mean, you're going to tell me how you did this, but the kind of backstory is like, so now chefing's cool, which is great because I can make a living doing TV shows and radio shows and, you know, people like that. People want to hear the stories and it's, it's, it's become kind of like showbiz to the point where the, the one of the protagonists in the book, the gentleman that opens up the restaurant, 
it starts, I think, the first page, the first chapter, is he's 13 years old. He's just had his bar mitzvah. And as the gift is, he's having dinner with a buddy at Chanterelle. Is that and, how it begins? Uh, actually, it begins on his opening night and then cuts right back to okay, there. Okay, Because somehow I thought that him being 26 and $700,000 in debt... <laughs> was maybe going to grab the reader a little bit faster than the bar mitzvah dinner. You're right. That's why you teach at J school and I don't. <laughs> um, yeah, it's opening night, which is true. I remember that. It's opening night. He's running up and down the steps. That's the actual the first page of the book. Right. But then I'm not, not that far into it. And I'm, like, and I'm thinking, like, that's the world we're in. Like, when I was a kid, like, I mean, the fine dining wasn't something like anybody. I mean, we just... The 60s were a horrible time in America for food. And the 70s weren't much better. And, you know... Uh, you wanted, I mean, I went to a ton of bar and bought mitzvahs and everyone just got envelopes full of money and then they bought stuff with them. This idea that I want to go to Chanterelle and eat as a 13-year-old is crazy. Well, Jonah knew he wanted to be a chef, I think, from the moment he could articulate the word chef. Um, Why do you think that is? Oh, I think there are people who love to cook just like there are people who love to write. And if it's a crazy business, either one, but if that's what you want to do, if you love being in the kitchen and looking at the look on people's faces when you hand them a great plate of food, that's what you're going to do. And the only question is, how am I going to do it? Sort of. But to your point, this book is it's 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 great because it's kind of, you know, there's not as a guy that grew up in the business and grew up and I started cooking at 13 and now I'm. A million years old. Not 13. And, right, I'm not 13. <laughs> um, and I worked my way from like dishwasher to executive chef for the Ritz-Carlton, had my own restaurant, all that stuff. It's a brutal business. And a lot of the food writing, I would really until Tony Bourdain wrote Kitchen Confidential. Actually, I remember the article in The New Yorker that launched it. Until Tony was writing in that voice, most of what was being written about restaurants was just through these rosy-colored glasses of the chef as this artist creator and this wonderful... And it, the truth is, it basically sucks. And when you, get, when you actually kind of get in bed with these people and see what their lives are like, you realize, holy Mother of God, this is a really tough business, it's and a, that's what this book gets. I mean, you. Do, so I'm going to ask you my first question. Okay, right okay. How did you get access to write this book? I asked Jonah. I mean, I'm, I'm being facetious. I had written um, a cookbook with Danny Meyer's group for staff meals, and I noticed that everybody in the kitchen was like 12 years old and already talking about opening their own place. And they all said the same thing: if you don't have your own place by the time you're 30, you're never going to have it. And I thought. That's a lot of stress. That's a lot of tension. This is really hard work. Um, and I thought, there's a book here because, as you said, nobody else has done it. So I asked people I knew for recommendations, somebody I might approach, and Jonah's name kept coming up because he had wanted to do this forever and he had just quit a good job at Myelino. Right, he was sous chef. To, as a sous chef, which in itself is probably – you know, certifiably nuts. Well, and he's, he's at Union, Hero, Union Square Hospitality Group. You know, so Danny's one of the impresarios of our generation, kind of like Drew Nieperant, Danny Meyer, a few others. But, uh, among them, I think Drew and Danny stand like head and shoulders. And Danny really is the guy who, when you work for Danny, you get things like medical benefits. Now he's got maternity leave. Now he's, he was one of the first guys last year to say, okay, we're going to get rid of tipping so that we can start to share that front of the house revenue with the back of the house and maybe create more equity. So leaving that's kind of like stepping out of a little oasis. Oh, yes. And you also, if you're really talented like Jonah, at some point they may say moved. to you, hang on and we're going to open yeah. a restaurant and you're going to run it. Yeah. But he wanted to have his own business. So I emailed him and I said, would you meet with me? Here's what I want to do. And I will never forget, he showed up with his backpack 
full of pieces of paper that were sample menus, designs he'd done for this non-existent restaurant because he didn't even have a space. He was then... 23? mm, 24. 24. He's a kid. This is crazy. He's a kid. He's a kid. So so he does. So he comes to you with his backpack and and he's looking and he ends up in the East Village... um, has to borrow money. And this is the other part. I think people don't realize this, you know, especially your first restaurant as an unknown person. You're going around to friends and family with a business plan that hopefully somebody looked over and tweaked it. And it's full of suppositions that the build out's going to cost this much, the payroll's going to be this high, the food cost is going to be 30%. And you're going to get X number of people. Which the, is the and, scary and, no, part. I remember because as, as I was reading this, I remember. So I was the chef at the Ritz Carlton, and then the stock market crashed in 87. My wife was the pastry chef to Pierre. Now it's, and so our investors were broke the next day. I mean, everyone was broke the next day. So instead of opening up a restaurant in Manhattan, we still very much wanted to do it. We had to open a restaurant elsewhere. We ended up in Cape May. And that meant coming up with a business proposal and knocking on all of our friends' doors, relatives' doors. Can I borrow 50000 from you? A letter of... And, and you're signing. These, these are, you know, promissory notes. I mean, no one's giving you money. Um, Next thing you know, you're you know a half million dollars in debt before you blinked, and and part of that thing is yeah, well here's the menu because you're and here's the first night we're going to do 110 covers, mm-hmm. and then in the high season we're going to do 110,000 a week, and by the end of the year, and then when you actually open the doors up. Who the F knows? Well, and it doesn't work out the way you think it's going to work. I mean, the thing, the roller coaster for Jonah was that it actually started out much better Talk than about he... It. Talk about it. So he opens up in, in April, May. He opens up what? in April, May, Could and be, they uh, are 15. flooded. Flo- They're doing more in a week right. than they projected for a month. 35000 or 32000 right. and that's what he thought the first month was going to be. Right. And then because of this, there's this like critical mass of press that comes in. So he gets on that eater hot list. And then, of course, Grub Street picks it right up away, too. So he's one of those guys, if you're a typical young New Yorker logging on incessantly to Eater and Grub Street, you keep seeing this huerta. It's got to be good. So he has this incredible first 60 days. He was on the heat map before he opened, before anybody had paid for his food. Why? Uh, Because of the USHG pedigree, because there was great talk about him, because people knew he was talented, because he had picked Spanish food, which is not as saturated as Italian food. Mm -hmm. So there was that novelty factor. And he's going to do pink toasty small plates. And uh, and it's the way that people like to eat now. And he's got interesting wines and ciders and things like that. And the scary thing for him was that right after that, he had like a month or six weeks of insane greatness. And then the bottom fell out. And there was a moment in August, I remember, he had stopped cashing his paychecks. He and I were sitting in the back room talking, and he's thinking the restaurant's going out of business, and I'm thinking... The book's going out of business. Well, that was going to be that's a, so. That's a question for me. Yeah. So clearly, uh, I don't know if it was a legal document. Clearly, you had unfettered access. Yes. You were with them all the time. Yes. The failure rate in New York restaurants is it's astronomically high. I mean, you could just Google it. Like one in X amount of restaurants makes it through its first three or four years. And trust me, folks, it's a very small percentage. Right. So the odds were stacked. He wasn't going to make it. And I know I can tell you as a fact that I have friends and acquaintances that open restaurants in that neighborhood, in that same time frame, that were just as good, maybe a bit better, pedigree. They didn't make it. They just didn't make it. They never got the Wells Review. They never had uh, Ryan Sutton come in. They just never got that initial jump up, and they're gone, and they've lost a half million dollars they're going to have to pay off to their friends for the rest of their lives. Well, I think the thing that he and I didn't understand, either of us, and we Mm. were sort of in this in lockstep, and maybe it's because we both just had to do this. I mean, I, my 
family-owned a restaurant supply company, so I grew up in restaurants. I had to write this book. He had to have that restaurant. And truly, we were living on fumes. And then one day, I was walking out of Columbia after teaching, and I got a text. And all it said was... Wells was here. PW is here. Yeah. And it was like a bad movie. I ran down to Broadway. <laughs> I hopped in a cab, and I said to the cabbie, get me to the East Village as fast as you can without killing us. Right? right? And walked in. And then, of course... I usually stood right next to Jonah in the kitchen with my little notebook, but Wells was sitting right across from the kitchen, and I thought, I can't stand here. It will screw everything up. Wells will get nervous. He'll wonder who I am. So I took a table and had dinner. You know, he must have thought I was one of those people who sits at dinner and writes in her journal, <laughs> right? Because I'm writing down everything. Well, you're, you're an academic type. You, right. Come on. Yeah. I mean, Columbia J School and stuff. Come on. You, you, the, the part and parcel. Right. Right. So I was just being an academic. And then, because I talked to him for the book, he was incredibly Wells, I saw that. You gracious quotes. and forthcoming. Yep. I was there for each of his visits. He was no very amused. Way. Oh, yeah. Because wow. they knew when he came in, they texted you when you were down in a heartbeat. They figured out his his... Yeah, well, it's in time, the book. I don't right, want to ruin book. it. No, it's in the book. The you one know, time he shows up book. early, it's a party of four. He's the bar right. waiting. Right. Uh, blah, blah, blah. But t- so let's go back to the beginning again. So okay. he comes out of the gate and it's way, like literally he does more gross revenue in the first week than he had budgeted for for the first month. Yep. That kind of great luck continues through most of June. Then things start to slow down. Now, we just talked to Patrick Capiello before before you got here because I know when you showed up. Patrick's in his third or fourth year now with Pearl and Ash, second year with Rebel. And he just said, and everyone said, because I'm... My whole world is chefs. That's what I do. This was a really bad summer for everybody in New York. It was just really, really hot. Um, it just drove locals out of the city or if you were in the city. It, I, I said to him, it's exactly like when the winters are really bad here. Right. It's like I'm a guy that eats out all the time. I love it. These are my friends. These are my family. This is the community that I live in. And we've a couple of those winters we had, last winter was mild, but there was a couple of those we had in like you know, 9, 10, and 11, where I would just come home from a whole day of being on the street and working out at the gym and doing this. And I would get back to my apartment at 6 o'clock and just say, I'm not going out in that crap again. No. I, I'm a chef. I can make myself dinner. I've got a bottle of wine in the fridge. I'm not going it's, to. It's, it's 10. So he gets to the summer, and it's just like lights out. It stops. Well, then they decide to do brunch. Talk about that first brunch. Because this is, as a chef, and now probably for you, when I walk past restaurants that are slow, it breaks my heart. And I don't care if it's an anonymous Chinese joint. I don't care what. When I walk past a restaurant at 7, 7.15 at night, and I see three tables or two tables. I am dying inside. And so his first brunch, I mean, you're thinking, let's do brunch. Brunch is profitable. Most of the brunch in this neighborhood sucks. Let's do a good one. Doesn't happen. There were more people working than there were at tables. Terrifying. And honestly, I sort of had this time-lapse little movie in my head. I could see the first couple of weeks where it was just packed. You could not get to the door without elbowing people out of the way. And then all of a sudden, it's a ghost town. I mean, servers are, and it's hot, servers are lying in the booths, moaning, wondering if anybody's ever going to show up. Um, And then, of course, once the Wells Review hit. And Sutton. They were at the same time. Same Wells and Sutton. Same day. You couldn't get in to the restaurant again. You know, the brunches, and it's a shame because the truth is the brunches were better. But there are so many other things that impact whether a chef's going to make it. He's on First Avenue. There's no pretty sidewalk seating on First Avenue. So if it's a nice day out and you can have great food indoors or mediocre food and watch the world go by, you have mediocre food and watch the world go by. You know, 
that and everything. There's the older I get, the more I look at opening a restaurant in Manhattan as the most terrifying thing you could possibly do. Because I cannot explain to me to this day why some places pop and other places don't. Because it is not on merit and it isn't on talent and it's not on. It's just there's a randomness to it that's that's horrible and maybe that's all of life. But uh, who knows? No, it's particularly random in New York. And in fact, the reason that I picked. I tell the stories on the side of well, Karen Kaysen Gavin and David Waltock and the, the, the and Stephanie Izzard who in I don't Chicago. know. But so David Waltock weaves his way through this book, and right around the same time, because I've known David and Karen since forever, mm-hmm. love them. They're one of two of the most unique people in the business. Um, uh, Chaturelle was one of the most unique and wonderful restaurants in every way, from the beginning, from when they were on Grand and Green, the hiring female staff to the bare walls, this European aesthetic, the idea that there were women servers, and he would let people. He had the most crazy schedules for people to, so, so they could be dancers and be writers and be playwrights. And their family meals better than most restaurants right. serve to customers. Right. I mean, so many. So when David opens Elan, I really want to go and actually go with um, a friend of mine that wrote his cookbook, Andy Frieden. Um, so we're, we're two friends. You know, we just the, the, Andy wrote his book. I've known David forever. And. If, you know, food wasn't great. I go to a. I don't like the room. Uh, it's just kind of beige and boring, and it's big. And I'm thinking it's got to be expensive. And yeah, I get to General Tso's sweetbreads, and I'm like, oh man, I don't want. It just wasn't. So I just had this feeling. I was because I film. I was going to try and do something with David. I'm like, I'm not going to film here. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, I'd eaten at the Gander two weeks before, which I liked much better. Jesse Shanker's neighborhood on, on 18th Street, same neighborhood. And and sadly, David, this was like his last restaurant, and. Was unable to recoup. He couldn't re- rent it. So as you point out in the book, every month that he couldn't rent it, he lost that month's rent. Oh, it was heartbreaking. And after four months, he's out the key money, which is $400,000. Yes. So I mean, it, this guy who's an American, who's a great chef, a great guy, this was his kind of going to be his last restaurant in New York after Chanterelle, you know, lost a half million dollars in a heartbeat. Here's, here's the thing. The reason that I called it Generation Chef, honestly, is because this is the first generation to grow up in the wake of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, social media, so yeah. that being a chef has become being a celebrity. And you yeah. really have a chance, you know, if your name is Batali or Kalikia or, or Meyer, to have an empire. So... Everybody's rushing now to be this thing that nobody wanted to be when you were coming up under, because it was a blue-collar profession. And the problem is it's just too crowded and people are in too much of a hurry so that people like Jonah, who's in fact really talented and has been working since he was a kid. And he's still in business, by the way. The restaurant's still, still there and business. he's doing great. Go there and the fir- eat. you got to read the book. The first year is really like – the first year is – got a headache reading the book because it is like <laughs> – it's like raising a kid. It's like watching the first 25 years of your kid's life. It's great. It's great. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's great. And then it's terrible again. And then there's the staffing problems. The poor girl that has the CIA loans who ends up working around the – in Bushwick for for uh, Missy Robbins at Lilia because she really wanted to get the chef's job at Huertas. But could. I mean there's all of those dramas that he was having to deal with, the three partners that become two. and Right, and these are the stories, honestly. I mean, the reason I like doing fly-on-the-wall stuff, right. if you spend all that time and you kind of live in the restaurant and you're there when nothing's happening and then you're there when something's happening, this is what it's really like. And even Tom Colicchio, who was kind enough to sit for an interview and just gave me this you know, great comment for the book, said he tells people, if you're going into it to be him, forget it. Because what Jonah goes through 
is what it's really like. Yeah, know? I tell, I mean, I give the same advice. I mean, the one girl, you, there's one of the cooks, the Joni, she's $80,000 debt from the CIA. I mean, it's, I, I, when I went to the CIA, it was, I graduated in 1982. It was cheap. I paid, my student loans were paid for after four or five years after graduation, making cook's wages back then. I mean, now to think that you're saddled with $80,000 worth of debt for an AOS degree that's going to get you a $12, $13 job line cook in New York City, and you're living in someplace in Queens where you'll probably take a subway and then a bus. Well, and the real irony is, you know, there have been all these articles that have been written lately about skilled employee shortages. Nobody can find a real cook because people get out of CIA and they don't say, I want to be a line cook. They say, I want to be a sous chef. But here you had somebody who was incredibly talented. I used to stand there sometimes and just watch her work her station because it was like going to the ballet. She was so good at what she did. She ended up going home to move back in with her mom in California because that was the only way she was ever going to get rid of that debt. So, you know, it's a real drama about these people who just can't imagine doing anything else and get this crazy pleasure from, oh, my gosh, you liked the octopus, you know? Yeah, no, it's great. It's, again, I mean, I couldn't, I think, of your higher compliments. I, I don't like most, I mean, very few people are actually writing true stories. Um, I thought Jeff Gordonet, he's left the Times now, he's at Esquire, but it's really like Jeff's pieces for the Wednesday Times that were occasional, because I just thought he sort of captured this sort of schadenfreude of the restaurant business. It wasn't all... Oh, isn't it wonderful? And the chef gets out of the limo and there's girls cheering and he goes and he counts his money and snorts coke. You know, business is a pretty it's, – it's, it's a tough business and there's it's a lot of failure. Business. And for the, for the young cooks coming up, I've gotten so much empathy because as this town gets more expensive, you know, $12, $13, $14 an hour for a line cook, it's really not a living wage. No. They come in early and they stay late and they're really not expected. I mean there still is this stigma about calling in sick. You kind of don't do it. I, in the eight years I worked in New York City restaurants, one day in my life I called in sick because I, <laughs> I – couldn't get out of bed. I'd been up all night, and my wife said, "You're going to be, you're going to go to work and pass out." And, and you know that was it. You just didn't do it. So it's so tough. And so the name of the book's Generation Chef. Um, Karen Stabiner. Stabiner. Karen Stabiner, uh, who teaches journalism at Columbia J School. It is a really great book. So as the holidays come upon, if you're looking to a gift for someone to maybe encourage, maybe discourage. Well, give them a real inform, sense. Give them yeah. a real sense of what this business is like. It's great, because no one's done this before, and I'm surprised no one has, but maybe I'm not so surprised because of the access issues. You're really going to get to know what it's like a, almost a day in the life, day by day, for the first year and a half of a, of a young kid opening up his first New York restaurant that almost collapses. And then doesn't. Ta-da. And then doesn't. Ta-da. <laughs> we all love happy endings. Thanks so much for the great book. Real, real pleasure. And you really, I mean... I know you put in the the hours and the work because you could see it in the writing. You oh, were thank there. You. It's thank great. You. Yeah, it's I great. was happy to be there. Really. And the interwoven story is great because Gavin, the other three chefs. I mean, Garen was a silver medal at Boku's door for many years with uh, with Danielle. I, I've known him forever, and uh, now he's doing really well where he is. He's left the city, but decided after all of this madness. But after at one third of Jonah's rent, I just have to say, <laughs> space that's enormous, enormous. Yeah. Yep, yep. Generation Chef is the name of the book. It is great. It says it all. It's really, really a great read. Get it for yourself to learn. Get it for gifts for the holidays. It's super. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. And folks, next week, stay careful. Next week is going to be all wine, I'm forewarning you. I've got Aurelio Montes coming in to talk about what he does in Chile, which is a pretty amazing story. And then I've got the woman we were mentioning today, uh, Jenny Lefcourt, who's one of the owners of Jenny and Francois. She's a huge natural wine importer into the USA, New York-based, huge fan of her and her portfolio. So next week, if you like listening to wine shows, it's a solid hour's worth.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.